Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. Charles Schultz and Peanuts, ostensibly, need no introduction. The comic strip, at one time read by most of America and adored around the world, has created characters recognizable to this day. Even some of the concepts, like Lucy and the football, often inform political discourse. But what if I told you that a simple children's comic was not just a story for and about kids, and that Peanuts can tell us a great deal about the adult world of post-World War II America? With me today to make just that claim is Professor Blake Scott Ball, author of Charlie Brown's America, The Popular Politics of Peanuts, coming out in, on June the 1st by Oxford University Press. Professor Ball, welcome. Hi, Avi. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Uh, I should note before we get into discussion that this book, uh, having read this book from beginning to end, it is very fair, very interesting. You could probably uh, give a whole course on all the different subjects that uh, are covered in the book, but we will only be able to discuss some of them today. And a very refreshing change is that it is a nicely balanced book discussing the different and difficult questions of American uh, cultural debates in a very fair manner. So let me start with the question uh, that I ask every one of my guests. How did you get into this? It seems almost a little silly for an academic study to discuss comic books. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a great question, Avi. Um, it uh, it did feel it did feel a little silly um, at times to, while my classmates were were digging through old dusty. Um, uh, official papers and and uh, and government documents and things like this that I was uh, flipping through the funny pages and cartoons and um, but uh, I was interested in this idea in part because um, Charles Schultz work had always been a bit of a curiosity to me um, because it while on the while on the one hand um, it was it was really the art was really pleasant and engaging and simple and the characters were all um, relatable in, in various ways a lot of times um, some of the some of the various scenes and emotions and things depicted in the comic strip for a kid uh, were just uh, kind of over my head and I didn't I didn't exactly understand um why why uh why peanuts wasn't always so easily digestible as some of the other uh comic strips of my childhood like um particularly like garfield uh for example uh which was you know like you know garfield likes lasagna i get it and uh but but sometimes uh the uh, sometimes the the subject matter of peanuts was really was really subtle or really melancholy or really somber and um, and yeah, I was confused by this as a kid and as an adult um, I was intrigued by the fact that you know so much of the historical field uh, as I was coming into graduate school, was was kind of looking at mid-century America and dissecting this whole notion that there had ever been any kind of consensus uh, in American life, and that instead it was this place um, 
of of kind of bubbling turmoil turmoil and division uh, just under the surface ready to break out and uh in the in the 60s and 70s is when when all of that broke out and uh and you know kind of undid the myth of of the cold war and um and so to see something like peanuts that had an audience that ranged from all kinds of different backgrounds and interests in america um all at one time looking at the same place uh the the funny pages and charlie brown uh and seeing things that mattered to them wherever they were on the political spectrum um i I felt like that was worth serious uh consideration uh serious serious study maybe it said something about um what it meant to experience the cold war uh from uh from different vantage points in uh, uh in america well very well argued and uh having read your book you certainly make a very good case that charlie brown both held up a mirror and helped shape uh, how Americans saw themselves on all sides. Let's start with let's start from the beginning. Uh, the consensus, as you say, the consensus era with uh, President Eisenhower and the general consensus between Republicans and Democrats in the 1950s. Um, that was a world shaped by the experience of the Second World War, mm-hmm. and as you mentioned. Uh, Schultz served in the Second World War. He was drafted. He was a member of a machine gun team. Uh, He served briefly in Europe, although interestingly enough, and I wonder if it affected his life, was that he never, he was never in one of the quote-unquote famous battles, uh, (laughs) Normandy, the Bull, Jokinawa, Guadalcanal. His was a much more uh, mundane, uh, relatively speaking, obviously, uh, service. Um, But uh, one thing that really stood out to me is that this world that, sh- like I said, shaped by the Second World War, and yet in your book, he makes no significant mention of that war until the 1980s. Hmm. Uh, and then only like the battles like this, it, there didn't seem to be any mention of the of the Holocaust to any degree. Uh, might hmm. you comment on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, in, in some ways... Um, well, I, I, th- I think you're I think you're uh, dead on uh, with your assessment that um, that Schultz kind of fought a um, a relatively mundane uh, war. He, uh, in fact, in one interview, I think he even uh, even uh, well. Now I'm I'm blanking on. Uh, which word he uses but but in essence he he uh makes the same claim um that uh, that his war was was pretty um uneventful but uh one interesting thing to me is that you know a lot of um a lot of world war ii era veterans i've spoken with um have the same sort of um or, or had the same sort of attitude about it that that uh, that maybe it was it was kind of um, pretty mundane with with the with the periodic uh, uh, interjections of of uh, eventful moments. Um, but um, and, and I think some of that uh, speaks to uh, just how culturally 
significant World War II became in in um, in the kind of memory of the 20th century, especially by the late 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. Um, and so I think a lot of those guys, the and, and I think in some ways that's kind of what um, that's kind of one of the emotions of of big remembrances like. Uh, like saving private ryan which is this kind of feeling of you know this bigger than life thing and yes you were there but you know like you weren't the hero of it um uh, and so there's um the the war definitely plays a big part in um in charles schultz uh thinking um, but as you noted, it doesn't play a big part, um, kind of explicitly in the war or in the uh, comic strip until much later in his career, uh, in the uh, mid '80s, and then into the early '90s when he starts uh, on his annual D-Day remembrances. Um, now, I would we we might argue that uh, like when he starts during the Vietnam years, when he starts his um, yearly tribute to uh, to Bill Malden, um, where Snoopy will will uh, the will uh, share a root beer with the with the cartoonist from uh, Stars and Stripes, uh, 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 Bill Malden. That that is a uh, a reference to uh, World War II in a way. Um, I, th I think it, it, at least initially the reason why Charles Schultz doesn't do more with with war in, uh, in Peanuts is because um, much of the advice he was getting from his uh, from his colleagues in art was that um, people by uh, 1950 people were tired of war. They were tired of talking about war. Like there had been, uh, there had been a big, you know, uh, if you think kind of uh, World War II period, like Captain America is fighting the Nazis, and and eventually, you know, Superman and Batman get it, get involved in in the war, and um, you know, uh, uh, even Disney's characters, uh, especially like uh, Donald Duck, gets involved in the war and things like this. Um, but uh, there was this sense by the early 50s that there's kind of an exhaustion with with war as a topic. And so Schultz really uh, focuses a lot on on domestic life. Um, and um, and so, yeah, it's almost like he doesn't he doesn't really come back to war until it's it's really um, more of a more of a deep memory for him than it is um, really kind of immediate. Yeah, I find that particularly fascinating because mm -hmm. I come from the generation in, of where we grew up on World War II as this incredibly larger-than-life thing. And yeah. as you said, uh, Schultz and many other veterans had a not an unheroic view of it, but certainly not in not a glorious view of it. Mm -hmm. Like Bill Maudlin mm -hmm. was like a an unglamorous heroism, <laughs> and yep. and it, it it actually ties into my, my next question about uh, I'm. I've become very interested in the First World War and how it helped shape the modern world. And so, first of all, I, did, I had no idea that he was using it as an analog for Vietnam. That was the first <laughs> I, I, thing I learned. But I, I noticed a couple of other interesting points which I'd like to discuss. Um, okay. First of all, 
it he comes in he comes out with this unglamorous heroism and yet in his analog to vietnam he chooses the most heroic in theory heroic conception of war that they could bring up in world war 1 which was full of trenches and mud and mm-hmm. death and 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 mundaneness and only like small amounts of heroism for him the hero is the ace in the air mm-hmm. snoopy fighting the red baron which at the time they were trying to do that at because you know, you didn't have like crazy uh, stories like I guess in the Civil War sometimes someone carrying the colors into something, uh, into a position. Um, how? Wh- why did Schultz, who came who came away with the war he experienced with such a a a, a normal quote unquote viewpoint, decide? Well, if I'm going to describe the experience of stru- America's struggle with war, I'm going to choose the most heroic understanding rather than say. A normal soldier charging the trenches, or even as a as a machine gunner trying to defend the trench. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, that that's a that's a fabulous question. I think um, there's there's a there's probably a couple of uh, levels to it. Um, first off, uh, Schultz would say that he actually came up with the idea when he and his oldest son. Um, Monty, who who actually grew up to be an author himself, um, the two of them were watching some old uh, movies uh, in rerun on on uh, the television, and uh, there was a dogfight scene. And um, Monty claimed that he came up with the idea of Snoopy in a dogfight, and and Schultz claimed that he came up with it in the in the conversation, but. Um, this is kind of what gave him the idea. I think from uh, from the uh, from the initial inception of the idea, it makes a lot of sense to kind of have Snoopy uh, up above and aloof from um, from a lot of the the grime and, and grit of of actual warfare. Um, and, but there's also, um, you know, kind of from the time that he really starts flying and fighting the, the Red Baron, there's this whole theme of, you know, Snoopy, who is often kind of, um, uh, you know, Snoopy in his imaginings is, is, is kind of uh, um, almost... Um, unconquerable you know he he's the he's the you know the big wild hero but it but it's interesting in in this uh in this segment you know where he's supposed to be this glorious brave pilot he keeps getting shot down and <laughs> yeah. uh you know he keeps ending up in defeat much like his his owner uh charlie brown whose naming never remember and uh and so um, but also, as I, as I describe in the chapter, it keeps getting, um, after he gets shot down, it keeps getting more and more gritty and more and more realistic in the way that a, a lot of the, um, a lot of the ways that Schultz handled these type of scenes, which started in 1965. So right as, right as U S troops were, uh, first getting, uh, directly involved in combat in, in South Vietnam, um, they were um, uh, oftentimes they were narrated uh, by Snoopy, so they're kind of in his imagination. But increasingly, they become um, kind of graphically represented in the panels themselves. And so the panels, right, like when, trans- when his yeah. when his doghouse is shot up and whatever. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it transform, you know, the the scene, the the kind of uh, minimal scenes of of the neighborhood and the backyard actually transform into the French countryside or uh, things like this. And um, so, I I think that um, I think that that Schultz does kind of. Um, it, well, and and even uh, another case where uh, where Snoopy ends up um, uh, playing out a a fantasy that he's been captured and he's a prisoner of war and and th- things like this. So the um, Schultz definitely kind of takes what what should be this in a very kind of Schultzian style. What takes he he takes kind of what you expect of a particular image and then he he kind of morphs it into uh, something uh, more ripe with, with, uh, with comment and um, uh, kind of uh, reflection than just the simple um, uh, stereotype of, you know, the, the pilot hero of world war one. And, um, and um, something that I, that I don't talk uh, about in the book, I, that I recall, but, uh, but later when Schultz years later, when Schultz comes back to, uh, doing the flying ace again, he does introduce, um, by that point he had introduced, uh, one of Snoopy's brothers, Spike. Um, mm-hmm. and Spike actually is a foot soldier in the trenches. And wow. so there's a whole segment of stories. This is probably, this is probably early eighties um where uh where spike is in the trenches writing letters back to home and uh and so so he definitely gets into the uh that that story just later it wasn't in the context of of vietnam because as i say in the chapter he he after a few years he he gets away from the whole uh uh war imagery altogether because he just feels like it's too close to home for what's happening in the world Oh, that's understandable. It, it it sounds throughout the book that he was very thoughtful and sometimes calculating in what he drew, how he drew it, when he drew. Um, and I would like to bring that up because you you showed once a, you showed an image in your account, um, uh, your PhD alongside the book, and the PhD was called Charlie Brown and the po- and the Politics of the Wishy Washy. Mm-hmm. Um, which, first of all, I was kind of stunned that they allowed a PhD that's entitled Wishy Washy, but uh, you know that's not a word. That's first of all. But second of all, um, I'm not so sure that I'm really convinced that Schultz was wishy washy. When you hear wishy washy, you think someone who's a weather vane, someone who goes wherever the poles are going, someone who just wants to get along with everybody. Mm-hmm. And the picture you portray is, at least to me is something else. It sounds yep. like someone who had strong principles, mm-hmm. but which did not really entirely fit in the kind of neat boxes we try to do today. Yeah. So yep. on the one hand, you describe him, and he was seems to have been a very much a committed Cold War liberal, uh, very enthusiastic about uh, equality of opportunity, Mm-hmm. principled equality of opportunity for people. On the other hand, his views on culture would lean what we might call more conservative, more to the right. So he's like, mm-hmm. so when, so that's the kind of thing that might work to, when you're, when Cold War liberals are ascendant in the 1950s. But <laughs> when everybody starts pulling apart in the 60s and 70s, and as you showed, it sounds like, well, 
you know, you may be very principled and a lot of people may be very principled with you, but we don't want you in either camp. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, and I, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm glad that you, uh, uh, pulled out that, uh, that language from the, from the grad school days. Um, I got that from an interview that Charles Schultz gave, um, in the late nineties. Um, so, so very late in his career and, um, and the interviewer was asking him about, uh, ask him about, uh, what his politics were and, and was getting at this very question of why it seemed like in some ways he moved, uh, uh, towards towards the right uh on a, on a lot of cultural issues but it, but in other ways when uh, thinking about conceptions of rights and and things like that he he might tend to move um more with the kind of uh traditional uh cold war liberal um and and so the the interviewer was trying to figure out you know where where do you stand and uh, and Charles Schultz said, uh, "said uh, I'm I'm kind of wishy-washy, aren't I?" And <laughs> and of course the the interviewer was like, just just like you, Avi. The interviewer was like, "No, no, no, that's not, that's I, I'm not, you know, because because again, I, I think you're right. I think wishy-washy communicates to a lot of people like um, an idea that that." there are no principles there is no backbone there's no there's nothing you stand on you just kind of blow with the wind um but i think what charles schultz meant by that um from from what i from what i gather from from uh my research i i think what charles schultz was talking about was a a um he he very much had uh, principles um, and sometimes quite stubborn, strong ones. Um, but he he viewed um, he viewed the working out of of politics and society and and kind of living in this in this larger community. He viewed it as something that was going to be a a process, a negotiation. A, a a discussion um that's a, rather that's than a, a flame war on twitter yeah yeah exactly exactly um yeah he he wanted to and and that's and that's really where i i see something like peanuts being so essential uh um uh in the political culture of america was that you had you had a space. I, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this earlier when I was considering, you know, kind of thinking ahead on what we might talk about. I was, you know, uh, um, there there was a there was in, in mid century with with things like peanuts. There was a common vocabulary um, mm -hmm. for Americans to argue with. Um, they argued. They had disagreements. They were they could be extremely heated, but they had the same uh, vocabulary that they are using to to argue these things with. And that vocabulary might be actual words and phrases, or it might be images and allegories and metaphors. You know, just like just like our language today, we have you know we we we'll have whole arguments with memes and and gifs and you know and all all these kinds of uh, things. So. Um, but um, uh, but 
there was a um, there there weren't there weren't so many there there wasn't yet the kind of space to be to have entire camps of 70 million people on one side and 70 million people on the other and they live in worlds where they largely don't talk to each other right mm-hmm. and they and they right. don't use the same terminology or they don't even they they don't even consider the um, uh, the the same issues in the same terms. They they're completely you know talking in opposite directions from one another. Right. Um, that actually is a very nice segue to an, to a question that I want that you touch on in two chapters and that I'd like mm-hmm. to touch on here. Um, one of the things you show one of the most important things you show in this book is that questions about how different people, different Americans are represented in popular culture. Uh, debates on how that is done are, of course, not new. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you show, Schultz got uh, fan mail and quote-unquote fan mail on, uh, on, on literally everything he did from how he represented religion, from how he represented uh, women, uh, how he, from how he represented uh, black Americans. Um, so let's let's start with the question of the of women. Um, first of all, it, w- it was interesting to me that you mentioned Lucy and Patty, but there's no mention of Sally, uh, mm. who who I thought perhaps she's like she she struck me as kind of like being a middle grounder. Like if Lucy <laughs> and Patty are more rebellious, Sally is like she'll rebel sometimes, and sometimes she'll be like more within the within the norms. Mm-hmm. Um, but but two things struck out at me. Uh, one is that, I mean, yeah, it's possible to say Lucy is a, is an evil stereotype or whatever, or she can be understood that way. But the truth is, is that if anyone's had, if we mentioned the flame wars on Twitter, if anyone's, you know, been in cultural debates today, people who are ideologues can often be Winston. And it's not definitely not just women or feminist women, uh, can definitely be Winston Churchill's definition of a fanatic, someone who can't change their mind and won't change the subject. Um, um, but what I also found very relieving, and I wish we'd see more of that today, is that in addition to just sending fan mail or today, uh, you know, if just a few people complain about it, uh, then the, then uh, computer then companies will just remove it and erase them and memory hold them. <laughs> is that you mentioned how, for instance, uh, in a in a in a in a strip describing how the secret how uh, Snoopy has a male secretary who's very lazy and obviously you know most secretaries at the time were women. So instead of just instead of just screaming and yelling, uh, you mentioned about how they subverted it and how they dealt with it with humor <laughs> and how they talked about the lazy boss. So. How is it? How is it that? How is it that he would do something that I'm sure many people felt defensive, but they were able to find the humor of it, and turn it on its head. And nowadays, it feels like, you know, there, there's no ability to look beyond that and like sort of uh, do that sort of a thing. Yeah, but it's only, only angry, only, 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 only righteous rage is possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I think, I think that's a, I think that's an excellent example. I mean, could you, could you imagine a, a case today where, uh, where people are, um, are upset about, uh, the, the representation or the por- portrayal or the, or the way something is framed, uh, today and then taking it, reformatting it and then sending it with a polite, 
congratulatory, friendly letter to say, hey, I love your strip. I didn't agree with this part, but I've redone it to, to, to make it, you know, uh, maybe more accurate to I, my world experience. See what you think. Like um, to, today, we, you know, there might be that subverting and repurposing and sending back, but it would also be with, with like you said, uh, kind of righteous wrath and, and, and vitriol, you know, attached to it. Um, and, and perhaps a call for, you know, some, some kind of, uh, economic, um, uh, uh, consequence or, 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 you know, uh, boycott or, or something like this. And, um, and so, yeah, is, is, is really, it was really interesting to see that, um, yeah, some of the, some of the women that wrote back to him were, uh, in that were quite, um, were really not happy with the way he, with the way he framed things and the way, and the focus on, on the secretary, um, in the way that it was like the secretary was, uh, was the, the one with, you know, causing the challenges around the workplace. And, uh, but yet there was a, there was a rapport between Schultz and his readers that gave them both the, the kind of, the kind of respect to acknowledge that, you know, that he's, he's not a moron just because he has a different point of view, but, but also the comfort. So they have the respect for him, but they also have the comfort to send back in reply in conversation. Here's how I would have done this. Right. And, and reframe it, you know, and, and as I, as I point out in the, in the chapter, they do some, some incredible, um, um, photocopying work to take those strips, uh, delete the word bubbles and put in their own bubbles and reframe it to where actually the, the secretary played by Woodstock is, is, uh, is telling you about how awful the boss Snoopy is uh, in the days <laughs> of the week. I mean, it's really, it's really brilliant, but, it, but again, um, today I don't even, I don't even know that that's that it's possible because everything kind of yeah everything kind of starts from from fever pitch and from um there's uh i don't know it's it's not even really it's not even really a conversation it's a it's a shouting match and you're either you're either on one side or the other and you and you just constantly hope that you're not on the wrong side uh, when the shouting starts yeah, uh, that, that's a once again a, a great segue into the the question of Franklin, the uh, mm. Black American uh, character that uh, Schultz introduces. And it, the, reading the chapter, I felt an, uh, an thought of a number of questions coming up. Mm. First of all, well, I certainly it's like there's the easy stuff and the hard stuff. The easy stuff <laughs> is to avoid the kind of really ugly uh, stereotypical way in which people used to draw black Americans. That's the quote-unquote easy stuff. But what you describe mostly through uh, your book in the chapter is that the harder stuff is finding some sort of 
balance between, on the one hand, you want to portray this person positively. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you don't want to idealize them so much that people become angered that this is like a token and not representative of reality. But mm-hmm. if, on the other hand, you're going to describe them as just one of the characters like everybody else in Peanuts, mm-hmm. well, then they're going to have flaws and then you're going to, because <laughs> just like any other person, then mm-hmm. they're going to be mad. Uh, and, and then it ra- also raised the question because you noted that some people wrote Schultz and they loved Franklin. They absolutely were over the moon with Franklin. Some, and some were not. And that raises the question, uh, the, the issue that comes up today is that nowadays there seems to be, at least among some companies and some creators, what I guess I would call a cultural precautionary principle. If it harms one person, if it offends one person, even if members of that group who are represented just are, love it. Uh, to take one example uh, from recent times, uh, Apu from The Simpsons, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who many Indian Americans genuinely adore. Right? They didn't consider it offensive, but others did not. So, and, 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 I, and I honestly wonder, when you, when you mention how he eventually moves away from not portraying Franklin at all, because he's confused and, and not sure, I want, honestly wonder if we, we didn't lose something from that. If we didn't mm. lose something, okay, so Frank, so he wasn't a perfect representation, so you could have done it better, but giving up entirely sounds like a real missed opportunity i think i think that yeah. that maybe the cultural the, the the cultural precautionary principle makes us lose too much yeah yeah that's a that's a um, that's a great point in fact as as i talk about in that chapter really what schultz was addressing this is in 1968 when uh, when he finally makes the decision to introduce Franklin, what Schultz was addressing is the fact that there had been such a precautionary approach to African American characters by by the uh, the years, kind of the 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 big years of of uh, the civil rights movement in the early and mid '60s, um, that. Um, that especially in graphic arts, comic books, um, comic strips, cartoons on television, uh, that black characters, they, there had been this, there had been this sort of um, uh, taking the right step of moving away from um, aggressively stereotyped and and um, and. Uh, in many cases, kind of mean-spirited um, humor, right? Making making fun at the expense of part of the audience. Um, uh, moving away from some of those graphic stereotypes, um, but there had been a total reluctance to replace that with anything. And so the effect by the mid-1960s was that black characters and graphic arts had virtually disappeared um they're 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 not there um and uh so schultz and and schultz is not the only one but schultz is one of the most prominent uh in the country uh to to start taking the step there uh, in in that uh, very pivotal uh season to um, to reintroduce uh, some characters in it, uh, that um, that would kind of define um, black pop culture representation moving forward, and um, and I've I've even heard it argued uh, by some that you know in a in a lot of ways 
uh, there was there was concern that you know Franklin um, Franklin makes great grades. Uh, Franklin always gives uh, wise advice uh, when Charlie Brown asks for it. He's he's always very uh, thoughtful and kind. You never hear him calling another kid a blockhead or like like Lucy does, you know, or losing his temper. Um, right. And so some you know some people have complained that well that you know he's just colorless right he has no personality and that's what makes it's the foibles of these characters that make them uh interesting characters um but uh but some have argued that uh that that's what makes franklin stand out among these characters um you know that's kind of his personality type i think i think in a lot of ways you can see Schultz really wrote his stories um, and 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 the the daily strips. Uh, he, he talks about how the best strips came out of the characters themselves. Like mm-hmm. you you have a situation and you put let's put Lucy in that situation. How would Lucy handle this situation, right? And the story develops out of that. Or how would Charlie right. Brown handle this situation? Story develops out of that. And um, and I think in a lot of ways, that's kind of what he runs into. There, there's, a, there's a challenge to write stories with Franklin because there, there's just not a lot of... Um, there's, there's not enough complication in his character to mm. uh to produce interesting storylines uh, mm. uh, again and again and um and but yeah I, th- I think you're exactly right i think that um that we do uh it, it is a missed opportunity um perhaps you know uh, perhaps schultz could have attempted to introduce um more ethnic characters um in the in in the strip uh to uh, be sort of uh companions to to franklin or or you know uh further diversify the strip um but he never really after the after this turn in the late 60s and early 70s he never really comes comes back to that and uh and franklin becomes more of a kind of um periodic feature than than a than a truly prominent um leading character um Mm. and but that said uh i think a lot of times we forget about like the fact that um like one of a very well-known peanuts character i mean franklin's very well known uh but pigpen Pigpen is is very well known. A lot of people, you know, think uh, Pigpen's a very very funny character. You know, he's always surrounded by his cloud of dirt. Yeah. Um, but Pigpen, um, Pigpen was pretty prominent in the 1950s, and then he makes sporadic appearances for the entire rest of 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 Peanuts. Uh, but he is never a consistently regular character. Um, mm. You know, he's an interesting character, but but he's very limited as far as how many panels he actually shows up in the run of the strip. So, Mm. um, you know, so Schultz kind of had a rotating cast um, and some characters that would come in for a period of time and then and then fall to the background. Uh, always kind of anchored around those those five, six, seven major Mm. characters that we all recognize. So he was. He was a gen- he was an artist in the sense that he he for him what mattered most of all in addition to the messages he wanted to give was that 
it follow the internal logic of the story, not shoehorn yeah. things in where it didn't belong. Okay, right, fair enough. Right, right. Uh, so I'd like to uh, ask as a final question, uh, you note at the end of the book that um, by the early not late 80s, early 90s, uh, uh the diversification, if you will, uh, the increased pluralism in American media and culture means that there's no longer, for better or worse, uh, a kind of three, three major net, just three major networks and uh, the cannot, I guess you'd call them canonical popular culture like peanuts. <laughs> but, but, but I, um, is that the core thing? Because, because it's kind of funny because you talk about the cultural wars of the 90s. Why is it that the cultural wars of the 90s were what broke peanuts and not, say, the cultural wars of the 60s and 70s where there were riots and, and terrorist <laughs> attacks and, 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 and things like Kent State? Like, how is it that mm. a quote-unquote commercial revolution destroyed what, you know, 1968 could not? Mm. Mm. That's a good, that's, that's a really good question. Um, huh. You know, in... In the 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 bizarre thing about about peanuts in the um, coming out of the fifties and into the nineteen sixties is that you know you were just as um, you were just as likely to find um, peanuts being discussed in the 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 boardroom of a um, Madison Avenue. Um, uh, you know, ad executive um, firm, or or uh, to see it discussed in um, underground newspapers for uh, Berkeley college dropouts, or you know, like like it it, it uh, right. It was, but that just that just reinforces the question: How is it that that was the case in the nineteen sixties, and somehow in the nineteen nineties, that's not the case? Yeah, um, I think that by um, by the 1990s, um, Schultz has changed in some ways. Schultz is, mm -hmm. you know, Schultz is a grandfather, and um, many uh, to bring Franklin back as an example. Franklin actually makes a comeback uh, by this point, but Franklin is oftentimes um, the stories that Franklin is in now is Charlie Brown has a, a conundrum. And Franklin will answer with uh, some wise advice that his grandfather gives him. And so mm. my grandfather always says, and so, uh, and so there are a lot more kind of reflections towards um, uh, almost, almost personal reflections of, of Schultz back onto um, uh, on to a new generation. This is also where you see him start doing his annual uh, D-Day remembrance and, uh, so and th things. So it's much more past-oriented as opposed to yeah. much more present-oriented when he was in the 50s and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yes, I exactly. I, I think, um, and, and that's that's kind of that's kind of where I where I leave it in that uh, in in that epilogue is is that um, that in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of by defi by defining in a lot of ways the culture of its period, uh, it also 
uh, that success also in the long term kind of hamstrung it because it becomes almost inseparable from the moment, even when the moment's passed. Um, mm. That that it it seems, and, and I think in a lot of ways that's why it was a bit of an oddity to me as a kid growing up in the '90s that I enjoyed it and I thought it was interesting, but I also like there was no mistaking when I saw Charlie Brown. Christmas special. There's no mistaking that this offbeat, you know, kind of kind of uh, subtle, low energy jazz music piece was nothing like my He-Man and Ninja Turtle and <laughs> you know cartoons like which were all action and color and movement. Um, mm. it, you know, and, and so it was. It felt a bit bizarre, and I and it always made me wonder what was going on in my in my parents generation that this was entertainment like, <laughs> you know because it's just kind of it's just kind of real sedated um mm. but uh but but in a lot of ways the 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 thoughtfulness and the the um the message in what uh, in what was being communicated was was um uh had a lot more depth arguably mm. than than some of the you know, kind of rapidly turned out content that that I watched. Yeah, I I, I happen. I mean, I, I'm going to confess here at the end of the interview that I have always been a more uh, bigger Calvin and Hobbes fan than the Peanuts fan. <laughs> um, but I do think that even setting its some of its dated aspects aside, I think that the fact that Schultz did not become did not make his comic into a bit too period specific a thing mm -hmm. in that it still contains enough universal elements that i think that okay you'll have to tell people some of the historical references i think the kids could, might be able to enjoy it you know 50 years from now or at least yeah. some of the strips and i think that that may have been part of its genius yes yeah. so now the book is coming out uh, at the uh, at the uh, beginning of next month, uh, you have a huge speaking tour ready now that uh, the coronavirus <laughs> is going away and whatnot. Yes, yeah, we got uh, we're we're going to be kicking off with some uh, with some uh, uh, book signings around. I, I'm in uh, the Montgomery, Alabama area, so we're going to be here in Tuscaloosa and in North Alabama. Um, and then I have uh, several events coming up in the in the fall. Um, uh, this summer, I'm speaking at uh, Town Hall Seattle. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that'll be an online event, uh, so people can uh, can find that and join us. Uh, I will be at the uh, George W. Bush Library in the fall, uh, speaking uh, speaking to a group there. And mm -hmm. uh, and and more more events to come. Well, I look forward to uh, hearing more and seeing more, and uh, I uh, I hope this isn't the last we have heard of your work on Charlie Brown because the, <laughs> there seems to be like an endless amount of uh, work that can be done. <laughs> Professor Ball, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. It, it was a wonderful time.